The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 275 for July 26th, 2010. Welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab. I am Dave Hamilton here in sunny but dry Durham, New Hampshire. On the other end of the Skype line is my good friend. John Efron here in uh, also uh, quite reasonably humid as opposed to uh, the... Oh boy, the Saturday was tough. I went to a uh, photo walk in uh, one of the Scott Kelby photo walks at the uh, oh. Brooklyn Botanical Gardens. And I think if I saw the weather, it was a record breaker. It was like 96 degrees. There was a weather alert. I mean, some of us wimped out after only a couple hours. Got some beautiful pictures. Very nice place to visit. I was pulling was, uh, stumps out of my uh, my yard. You, you mm-hmm. bush stumps uh, on Saturday when it was that uh, that temperature. So I don't want to hear about you and your uh, your sweaty photo walk. Were you a little sweaty? Uh, everybody was, but uh, everybody was. So it kind of, you know, worked, yes. worked, uh, worked out, but great place. I mean, lots of different gardens and uh, yeah, a lot of, a lot of photo ops. Did you put your pictures online? Ways. At least, you know, you're talking about it on the show. Can we see the pictures? I'm working on it. I took, okay. I think I took 317 pictures. I got to kind of, kind of tear that down just a wee bit. I would, yeah, we'd appreciate that. Awesome. Well, we look forward to, uh, to seeing them. Uh, so we had a show last week that, Generated a ton of follow-up. Uh, and then actually the show we did before I went on vacation, also gen- number 272, generated a ton of follow-up. So we've sort of uh, pulled all that together, and we're going to go through some of that follow-up here. And then, of course, it wouldn't be a Mac Geek Gab, or at least it wouldn't be a normal Mac Geek Gab, without your questions and our answers. And so we have that, too. But we're going to turn it around a little bit today, and we're going to start with your answers to our answers. And uh, And I believe we're starting... With Kurt, in 274, we talked about the dock uh, and moving both the dock and the menu bar mm-hmm. location uh, for multiple monitors. And Kurt actually, Kurt and many of you uh, yeah. actually wrote in. I asked you a question, and and I think, uh, yes, they're, they're going to expand on the, uh, there you go. the answer. Hey, it's Kurt. Just listen to the latest Mac Geek Gap 274 and have a bit of a correction for you. Um, just recently moved into a new house and brought my external screen with me, um, propped it up on a large book sitting behind my MacBook. Um, I can actually arrange the screens vertically, and when I drag the menu bar to the top screen, the menu bar is on the top of the top screen, and the dock is at the bottom of my regular MacBook's built-in screen. So, um, you know, with my experience, I've been able to... Um, arrange the screens vertically and have the menu bar and dock be on separate screens. So just wanted to throw that out there. Uh, thanks. And I'll keep listening. Bye. Thanks, Kurt. So uh, <laughs> thanks for keeping. And yeah, we, we absolutely appreciate everyone listening. I so, never tried. I never tried that before. That, that was my question. I mean, it seemed reasonable that you should be able to do it. And uh, yeah, so, so Kurt's point, and, and again, this was made by many of you and I'll, I'll try to pull it all together here is that, the menu bar and the dock do not necessarily wind up on the same screen. If the menu bar is at the top and you have the dock set at the bottom, the dock will always be below the menu bar. But if you have multiple screens in height, uh, the dock will be at the bottom of your entire screen real estate. So it may be, as in Kurt's case, the screen below the one that has the menu bar. 
uh, along those same lines, if you have screens side by side and you have the, let's say you have two screens and you have the menu bar set to be on the screen to the right, but you have your dock set to be on the leftmost edge of your screen, the dock will go all the way to the left of the far monitor because that is the leftmost edge of your entire screen real estate and vice versa if you it, switch it you know, left versus right. So, yeah, the, the dock is always at the edge of whatever screen uh, real estate you have. Which is uh, which which makes sense. It's it's not how it's always been, though. I believe in ten two and maybe even ten three, uh, it would put the dock. If you had two screens side by side, you could have the dock smack dab in the middle of uh, of those two screens if it was on the left or the or the right. Mm-hmm. But I and and one other thing I noticed one option which I think is only available on external monitors. And actually, I'm looking at my ten five machine okay. right now. Yeah, a lot of times there's also. And again, I think, but please correct us uh, or follow up with us. <laughs> uh, but rotate. You can rotate many screens depending on if you want them in landscape or portrait. Like I'm looking right now on my Samsung SyncMaster, and it has a rotate selection, and I can rotate it 90, 180, or 270 degrees. Some screens support rotating the screen itself, and they may not be smart enough to rotate the image as well, which could be kind of traumatic. So if, if you want to do that and, and change the rotation and, and the monitor itself, or the driver isn't smart enough to rotate the image, then you should be able to do that through the display system preference as well. I think you're right that it has to be an external monitor, John. I can't do it with the one in my iMac or the one inside my MacBook Pro, but the Apple display that's external to my MacBook Pro will happily rotate with the default software in uh, in Mac OS X, at least in 10.6. And I believe that was the case in 10.5 as well. I think that it was introduced in Leopard. All right. Uh, We talked about digital sound last week and specifically about being able to or being able to or not being able to control the digital sound volume with the Mac volume controls. And Dave has uh, what we speculated that some manufacturers may, in fact, have uh, have created an ability to do this. And Dave provides a great example. Hey, John and Dave, Dave and John. It's uh, Dave Cook from Woodstock slash Socrates, New York. Um, just listening to, is it episode 274? Yeah. And uh, there was a question about controlling a, a USB audio device uh, with the Mac volume controls. And you guys didn't feel there was uh, any way to do that other than I'll work around. Um, I just want to let you know, I do have, I have um, as, uh, on my desk at home, I just have some cheap little reference monitors, the Alesis, um what the heck are they? I think it's the I think they're called USB 502 or USB 520. It's basically a five inch woofer and a and a tweeter, two way speakers. But anyway, uh, they have analog in as well as a USB in, and uh, I plug them in, and I can control the volume not only from the uh, volume on the front of the main speaker, uh, but also from my MacBook Pro volume which surprised me, actually, when I first plugged it in. I didn't expect that to be an option. I figured it would just be one level coming out of the USB, and then I just used the volume knob on the front of the speakers to, to control the overall volume. But they work in conjunction. And when I go to the uh, sound preference pane, um, it just says uh, it doesn't give a, a brand of the driver or anything. It just says USB audio codec. Hmm. And that's what I select or actually it selects it automatically but um and it works perfectly i can use the remote you know a little white apple remote or um the volume knobs on the keyboard itself and it does it so somewhere in there like you said maybe it's just because they did they built the driver at least just built the driver specifically for 
that reason, but um, it does work flawlessly. So uh, those are my two cents. Awesome. Thank you, Dave. That's uh, that's good to know. So, yeah, it is possible, of course, for vendors to write those drivers. And it sounds like Elise is, is one of the vendors that have done that. Yeah, I think I found I think it's the M1 Active 520 USB speakers. I uh, I was poking around on their uh, on yep. their site. Yeah. So I guess, yeah. So I guess creative, uh, you know, I guess to save money or, uh, you know, just chose not to do that. And yep. you get the built in functionality in the OS, which is none. <laughs> well, it, it sound comes out. Absolutely. Right. You know, so and and maybe that's not such a bad thing. Uh, you know, depending on how Alesis is doing it, uh, you know, may, maybe it's controlling the volume in the speaker. Maybe it is controlling the gain out to the speaker, which, as we talked about with digital, means dropping frames of audio, if you will. And that's not necessarily desirable either. So, Or it could yeah. be fiddling with the, uh, you know, depending on the uh, DDA chip there. It, it may have, you know, you may send a message to that chip saying, hey, by the way, can you, uh, you know, change the volume for me? Yeah, but wouldn't wouldn't that mean just killing? I guess if it if it changes the volume, the question is: Is it changing the volume on digitally or analog? Right? But is it changing before it converts or after? Because in the best case scenarios, you want the volume changed after it has converted to uh, to analog, so that you're actually adjusting the gain of the amplifier and not dropping sig- dropping actual data right. from the signal. Right. Right. What I'm suspecting is that there's a message that. Uh, you know, get sent over USB through the mm-hmm. via the driver to the D to A in the in the speaker, saying, "Hey, could you uh, let's change hope. the gain yeah. on the output stage?" Yeah, let's Just hope speculating. it's not. Let's hope it's not changing it in the in the in the computer right before it even sends it. So, right. Yeah, it'd be interesting to. We should contact Elisa and see if we can get that answer because mm-hmm. we're geeks and these are the things we like to know. Uh, Chris, in response to Lee's question from last week, which. Uh, I was happy to hear back. We heard back from Lee. Uh, Lee had the problem where his mail rules didn't work. And uh, for him, reordering them, uh, I believe, solved it. And for one of his friends, restoring from the backup P list solved it. But uh, we have a couple of additional thoughts here. Hey, John and Dave. I was just listening to the recent episode where you had a caller with his uh, email rules suddenly stopped working. And I noticed there was some important information that might have been missing. The first thing is, how does he get his email? Is it POP or IMAP? I suspect it's IMAP. And the second question is, two weeks ago when all this started, did anything else change? Did he, for instance, start getting his email with an iPhone, an iPad, or an iPod Touch that he just got? Because I discovered... The wonderful thing about IMAP is that it knows when you've checked your email from wherever you've checked it, but it's still on the server. Unfortunately, I also discovered that uh, my Mac at home does not apply rules to messages that I have looked at on another device. So nowadays I try to click get mail before I leave in the morning because my my stuff from mailing lists that I specifically want filtered usually arrives sometime in the wee hours, and as long as the Mac checks first, everything gets sorted by rules into its appropriate folders. But anything I've looked at during the day that would normally be sorted by a rule, 
I have to drag into its appropriate folder by hand. Unfortunately, I don't know a cure for this, but maybe someone else does if this is a particular problem. Thanks. I enjoy the show a lot. Bye. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, you know, that's very interesting. And I never, until I heard your message, Chris, I never realized why it was that sometimes things would not auto filter uh, in mail. But yet, if I went back and highlighted those same messages and went to the uh, message menu and chose apply filters, uh, then it would and they would work just fine. So, yes, it seems like messages received via IMAP that have been touched by another client before mail gets to them are ignored on the original check. But of course, if you go back and tell it to reapply filters, so that might be your magic answer. Chris is highlighting those messages. And then in mail, if you go to the message menu, choose what's, I'm sorry, it's not apply filters. It's apply rules. Uh, and then it will go and process all of those, despite the fact that they've been read uh, either on your Mac or elsewhere. So a little bit of a tip and a, uh, and an answer there. We, we like to combine it all together, John, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, along that same line, Rick wrote to us uh, about the same thing. And he had, he said he had a similar problem and tried all the same fixes that we tried, uh, but with no success. And then he said after months, he finally found that he had installed a mail plugin, which put a bundle in his home library mail bundles folder and removing that, uh, everything began to work again. So as troubleshooting steps, he recommends checking home slash library slash mail slash bundles and also home slash library slash application support slash S I M B L, which Rick says, if it exists affects mail. So those would be the, uh, those would be the two places to check. Do you know what SIM S I M B L means? Oh, it's a simple bundle loader. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. I knew that. Sure. <laughs> but apparently it's a way of loading plugins or, or bundles as, as these types of plugins are called in Mac OS X. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Interesting. And next. Uh, next is actually our first sponsor. And then after that, ah, we have okay. a discussion about fonts following up from, oh, yeah. uh, from last week. But, uh, but I do want to tell you about AudioEngineUSA.com. Uh, you've heard us talk about Audio Engine before. And uh, we're happy to talk about it again. Audio Engine makes, uh, first and foremost, they make speakers. They actually make quite a few little cool things. Uh, they're the speakers that I like to talk. I'd like to talk about all their stuff, but the speakers that I think apply most to most of our audience here would be what I call, or what they call the Audio Engine 2s or the A2s. And these, they consider desktop speakers. That uh, is two separate enclosures, each with two speakers in it. So four speakers total, two low-end woofer-style speakers, two high-end tweeter-style speakers. But they are uh, perfectly sized to fit on a desk. They have, uh, let's see, they are six inches high, four inches wide, and a little more than five inches deep. So it's a nice, solid enclosure, but it's not so massive that you can't fit it on your desk. These plug in analog. So your max volume control works uh, and they also have their own gain control on them as well. So you can set things uh, with the gain on those speakers so that the loudest you set your Mac to is the loudest you'd ever want the speakers. And then you sort of control from uh, from in there. The on the back uh, of one of them is the input and it also contains the amplifier and the gain control. And then. It has cables or it has connectors and there are cables included in the bag or in the box that connect to your other speaker and you're good to go. 
they're packaged very, very nicely. They, they all come in uh, microfiber bags. Uh, and then there's a separate microfiber bag that contains all sorts of different cables that you might need to get it from your Mac or from your iPod or whatever you've got uh, all bundled right there in with the box. These are $1.99 for the set. But the cool part is you get 10% off by using the coupon code M-G-G-T-E-N. So M-G-G-10, all caps, gets you 10% off. And they offer a free audition. So if you don't like them, send them back in 30 days. They'll send all your money back. All this at AudioEngineUSA.com. Okay, John, it's time to talk about your uh, our font thing. So uh, I'll set this up and then I'll let you take it. So we talked about uh, a user that was having problems or a listener that was having problems with damaged fonts, a font that for all intents and purposes, it, it wasn't working and we knew what font it was. The advice we gave was to replace it with a font from the Microsoft Office CD, assuming that that's where it had come from. As it turns out, Arial Black uh, comes bundled with Mac OS X, something we didn't we didn't notice. And uh, and so there are better ways to to do this. So, John, go ahead. Right. So um, I got an article from Mark and he linked to an article that's written by and this guy is like the king of fonts here, Kurt Lang. And he actually just updated this on June 28th. Okay. Now, in general, the advice that was given, which is that you wanted this, you do not want to have multiple occurrences of the same font, I would say is still valid. But here's sure. the little caveat in this case. As it turns out, in Snow Leopard, there is a small set of fonts that are installed as system fonts. And guess what one of them is? Arial Black. Exactly. <laughs> now, this is a problem. And so this is pointed out in the article. Now, I'm going to step back a bit. And actually, Dave, I think you, you helped figure out part of this, but, but this may be a mini geek challenge. So the reason I, I mentioned, so first, I, I, in error, identified Arial Black as a Microsoft font because I always used to see it on the Windows systems I used, or, or at least, you know, one that is typically on Windows systems. It turns out it's a monotype font. It's made by Monotype Corporation, I think it's the name of the company. And they, of course, license it to various people, including Microsoft and Apple and and then I'm sure a whole bunch of others. But here's the problem with the advice I, I gave and then a little finger wag at Apple's utility. So the problem is, so when I suggested disabling, and, and actually uh, Kelly got back to us and, and did solve the problem. I'm going to get to that in a moment, but let me focus. So the problem was, Dave, why I suggested using Microsoft Office is because Microsoft Office, surprisingly, has an option to reinstall fonts in their installer. Guess who doesn't? Apple. So that's basically why I, I thought that was the best path, because there's, there's not an easy way to do this from the Snow Leopard disk. If you go through the Snow Leopard installer, there is not an option, like in the Microsoft installer, that says install these fonts. So now what you can do, and what um, another article that was uh, sent along to me suggested, and, and here's the other head scratcher, Dave. So you look at the Snow Leopard disc, and you'll see a couple of programs on there, at least if you look at the DVD through the Finder, and you'll see Install Snow Leopard, Additional Installers. You'll, you'll see a few things that take up a handful of space, nowhere near the gigabytes that if you get info on the disc itself, you know, it's like six gigs or four gigs or however many gigabytes. It's a lot of gigabytes. Sure. And I was scratching my head. I'm like, how could you? And I'm, I'm going to give the answer to this, but, but maybe it, you had actually found the stuff, Dave. 
I did. I was asking. I'm like, Dave, where, where, where is this stuff? Is it, is it hidden? Is it on a, another partition? You know, I looked for another partition and through disutility only saw a single partition on the DVD. So well, they, they, I, before we get too deep down, let, let's talk about how you solve the problem. All right. And then, and then so the we'll way that you solve. All right. Stuff. So yeah. here's the best way to solve the problem. So what you have to do is you have to get into the guts of the Snow Leopard installer and find this font. Now, how do you do that? The best way that I've found to do it is you use a utility called Pacifist. Pacifist, current version is 2.6.4. It's shareware. It's $20. I think it's well worth it. And the purpose of this utility is to let you crack open things like Apple installers and installer packages and let you rip things out of them rather than going through the, the, the install installer proper, because sometimes, as we pointed out, they don't give you the option of installing individual elements. So if you have Pacifist, what you do is you run it, you put in your Snow Leopard install disk, and then once it's done launching, it'll have a big button saying open Apple install disks. And then it sits there for quite a long time digesting all of the installer packages. And then what you do, then they offer you a nice menu, and you got to dig way in here to find Arial Black. But it is in the following path. So they have OS install, then under that essential system software, under that essential system software group, under that base system, then essentials, and then it looks like a normal folder structure. And you go two folders further, library, and then fonts, and there's Arial Black. And then what you do is you click on it, and I believe the button, it says extract, and that will extract it from, I think it's an mpackage file, and it'll extract the font, and that will be the system version of Arial Black. Now, the reason you want that version, and then this is a finger wag to, uh, to Fontbook, the reason you want that version is because, and, and I'll notice this, so, so Fontbook will show you, if you highlight a font and you do uh, uh, Command-I, yeah. which is usually get info, it'll show you the version of the font. And from what I saw, the version of the Apple font is version 5, and the version of the Microsoft font is around version 2 point something. So, and, and also the Apple font is a newer format called OpenType, TrueType, whereas the, the one that Microsoft has is just TrueType. Uh-huh. So what you may run into, so, so while what I suggested is not going to hurt your system, it may, if, if some Somebody gives you a document that was made with the newer font, and then you try to process it with the older font. You may be missing things because there's a lot of extra information in the newer version of the font. Got it. Now, here's the finger wag at Apple. When I went into Fontbook, and remember there's that feature I mentioned where you can disable duplicates? Yes. Uh, Fontbook is stupid in that, in my case, on my system, yep. it actually disabled the Apple version. And left the Microsoft version app uh, active. Knowing that the finger wag was coming, I wanted to confirm this. And when I did it, I have three versions of this font on this particular machine. One in my home folder in library fonts and Arial Black. I don't Mm -hmm. know why it's there in my home folder. Uh, Hmm. Then I have one on the hard drive library fonts, Arial Black. Presumably that is the system version of the font. And then I have on the hard drive library fonts, Microsoft Arial Black. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it turned off the Microsoft one and it turned off the what the what I would call the system one and only left the one in my um, in my user folder active. So my guess is it's doing exactly I, I actually think it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do, because it assumes 
you've installed this font knowingly. And so it probably has a hierarchy and it says, look, if it's in your home folder, that's going to override anything on the system level as it should. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, you want this version of the font for your user. Fine. The rest of the people on the system get, you know, the system version. But if you want this one, you must have put it here for a reason. You get to keep it the same with the Microsoft one, which is in home or hard drive library fonts, Microsoft Arial black. Again, it's one level deeper. There is the assumption that you put it here. You know why you want it. I'm going to go ahead and disable the, you know, the, the, the higher up version because you've got this one here. I, I can, I can buy into the logic on this one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. So. And this article basically suggests what you should do. So if there's a, now one thing it mentions is that, with Office 2008, I think that's the latest version, you don't need the Microsoft version of the fonts. Now, right. depending on uh, now earlier versions, and this article does a great job of explaining the little gitch, glitches or gotchas you may run into. Some versions, prior versions of Office may require the Microsoft versions of fonts versus the Apple version. But uh, this, this guy indicates basically if you're running Office 2008, you don't even need the Microsoft fonts installed. And that may not even be an install option. I may actually have just come across it. Right. You know, and just saw it there and say, hey, well, this is the easiest way for me to get that. So um, another thing that was suggested, well, Dave, I, I want you um, to maybe speculate because, again, my question to you, Dave, and you looked and you saw the same thing I did. You see a few files on the install DVD. And the install package has to be somewhere. Now, of course, Pacifist and the Open Apple install disks can find this. Right. But where is it, Dave? So what I did was I went to the terminal knowing that you were having I, I, I trusted that you looked everywhere you could in the finder. Uh, and mm-hmm. so I went in. I just started in the terminal. And again, this goes back to me spending far, probably far too much time at the uh, at a Unix command prompt. And so the first thing I did was I went to the, the root level of the of the Mac OS 10 DVD, which would be volumes Mac OS 10 install DVD. And I issued, issued a DU command. I typed DU space dash. Oh, gosh. And, now, you know, I can type it all day long. But as soon as I have to think about it, I can't tell you what the command was. Well, DU you typed dash, it to me. Yeah. DU space yeah. dash dash SH, which uh, I believe shows subdirectories in human uh, size form. And then I hit star. Uh, and what that does is it lists all the directories and the sizes of those directories in what's called human readable form. So gigabytes, megabytes, uh, that way. And I found, and it takes a little time cause it's actually scouring through the whole disc to do this. But, uh, but once it came up, it said that there was a 5.1 gigabyte system folder, And then sure enough, I looked in the system folder inside. That was a folder called installation inside. That is a folder called packages. Uh, Now in there, there's a package called additional fonts, but then there's also a package called essentials. I think even knowing this and how to get here, you're still better off going with pacifist because pacifist is letting you extract specific files from the, uh, from the packages, as opposed to if I ran these, the installer would fire up and probably make me reinstall the whole package, which is not what I want to do. I don't want to install the essentials from Mac OS 10.6.0 when I'm running 10.6.4. So you're still better off with passwords. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I look, because the finder, of course, anything that's a package, you can mm. right click on it and say show package contents and it'll do something similar to pacifist. But right. pacifist is, a, I think, a much... Uh, much nicer uh, option. Right, right, right. 
So, All right. Um, now, Dan, also, now to follow up also, here's a, here was another good suggestion that I had not thought of. Um, but it's always worth mentioning. Or I was checking out this tool. So Dan, who actually is in Connecticut, right down the road from me, suggested another option. Onyx. If you run Onyx, Onyx has a fonts category. Yep. Within the fonts category, delete font cache. It's entirely possible. The very, and then there actually are, in addition to a system-level font cache, uh, from what I could see in Onyx, there are specific font caches for Adobe products and Microsoft products and, and a couple of others. So can't hurt. I mean, the only thing it can hurt is that if you restart your system, it may be a little slow because it's going to be building those caches, but a, a, a cache certainly could have gotten corrupted. So I would say the best move is once you've gone through the operation of retrieving the proper font and deleting or tossing, well, I would say disable would, would probably be the safest thing because it puts it in a place where the system shouldn't see it. I don't know if I'd, I'd, if I'd say you should actually chuck a font. I think disabling is safer. But once you, you properly have disabled the, the older versions of the fonts, you never know, you may need them again, then you should probably go to Onyx, get rid of those caches, and then restart your system, and then hopefully everything's okay. And then the final part of the equation here is that Kelly wrote back to us, Dave. And? And, and here's how Kelly solved the problem. Yes. I think I know why. Uh, Kelly deleted Ariel Black. Ah. And what I'm going to suspect happened is that when, when Kelly went to the webpage and the system saw that Ariel Black was not on there, it either picked a font that was closest to it or I think it may have rendered it actually on the fly or maybe downloaded it and displayed it instead of pulling it off of... of uh, his system. Yeah. Oftentimes what happens with fonts on a web page is you define a, a kind of a, a fallback order. So Arial Black may be the first one on the list, but then the next one might just be Arial and then it might be Helvetica. And then as a last resort, it just puts in uh, Sans Serif to say, hey, look, OK, uh, you don't have the fonts I want. You don't have anything close. So pick whatever your default Sans Serif font is and let's go with that. So that, yeah, makes good sense. Makes good sense. Cool. Wow. Okay. So that was an excellent follow-up, and boy, did I learn a lot about both finding things on the Apple Disk, um, but also just uh, font. And and you got you have if you do anything with fonts, you have to read uh, this article that we had linked to by uh, by Kurt Lang. It's it just goes into amazing detail about fonts, uh, how fonts are handled it, from uh, 10.3 all the way through 10.6, and and he keeps it up to date. Again, it was last updated. Uh, June 28th. Perfect. So, um, check it out. Now, one other thing was mentioned. Eh, it'll come back to me. All right. We'll go, we'll go on with Mark. Uh, but we're actually going back in time a little bit, as we promised, to show 272. And Mark says, I have a comment on the gentleman that was having trouble with his Ethernet jack being fried. I had a similar issue when I spilled coffee on my MacBook Pro. Nothing solved the issue, and I just assumed that it was gone. Little did I know that six months later, when I sold the laptop, with full disclosure to the buyer, I decided to wipe it out uh, to factory condition with the included Mac OS X DVD. To my surprise, the Ethernet then worked. So a last resort for him may be to back up everything on Time Machine and nuke and pave to see if it solves the issue. So, very cool. Thanks, Mark. Hmm. And we I had if the coffee just dried up. It could be. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you never know. You never know. You never know. Um, all right. And uh, let's see. Also in 272, we talked about uh, we talked about software updating issues. And Craig, oh, you know, Craig had an answer, but I don't have the answer here. And uh, so I'm going to we're going to skip that one, John. 
Is it is it time? Is it okay to skip that one? Or do you Wait. do you do you have the file right there? Do I don't have it. I may. Let me look here. Wait. Okay. Uh, so no, we can't. Uh, we looked. We even paused the show on your behalf so that you didn't have to hear us fumbling around here. But uh, but Craig's audio file wasn't there. So uh, the uh, the the long and short of Craig's comment was that running Onyx and cleaning caches actually solved the problem that a fellow listener was having with getting his software updates to apply. They would download, but they wouldn't, uh, they would fail every time they ran and, and running Onyx and cleaning out all the system caches solved that issue. So yeah, cleaning caches is, uh, is a good first step in troubleshooting and it's not a bad step in, you know, your, your preventative maintenance on maybe a three month schedule. You don't need to be obsessive about it every week, but certainly, uh, you know, every few months, couple, couple, three, four times a year doesn't hurt. All right. Uh, you know, let's jump into our questions here. And because uh, Michael's got a great one. I think it's a great one anyway. Hey, guys, it's Michael Johnston here from the We Have Communicators podcast. And I have something that might be a geek challenge for you guys. So I have my MacBook Pro that I back up with Time Machine uh, through my Mac Mini at home. So I have a Drobo hooked up to my Mac Mini at home and I uh, back up to the Mac Mini's uh, Drobo, and that works pretty well. And uh, But I also have a hard drive at my office that I hook up to an airport extreme base station, and uh, I back up to that as well. And so those both work properly um, until I try to switch between the two. So I go to the office and I can select the disk in the time machine preferences, and tell it to back up to that, and it backs up perfectly, and I can, you know, take the machine off the network, come back, and it'll mount the disk and back up and do the hourly backups properly. But if I come home, uh, it will not back up to the home time machine backup on the Drobo. Uh, I actually have to go into the time machine preferences and change it back to the Mac Mini. And once I do that, it works perfectly at home, but when I go back to the office... I have to change back to the airport disk. So I'm wondering if there's a way to get it to automatically uh, back up, regardless of if I'm at home or if I'm at the office, backing up to those two different disks, because I like to have the redundancy in case, you know, the computer is at the same place, you know, if I have a fire or something like that. Uh, it's good to have two backups. So if there's a way to do that automatically without having to worry about switching around, uh, maybe put it out to your listeners. Maybe you guys have some tips or maybe there's a, a hack of one of those cool uh, time machine applications that I can use. I really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Bye. And of course, thank you, Michael, because that is the famed Michael Johnson Johnston of the We Have Communicators podcast. And he's also the one that has converted this show and all of our other shows, most of all of our other shows, into uh, AAC format for you for many years. So, in fact, I think we're probably going on, we're almost probably almost at five years with Michael doing this uh, for us on, on a regular basis. So, uh, but yes, John, I, I do have, and Michael, I do have. Uh, what I believe is the answer here. So when you set up time machine, it points itself to a volume. Now, a, a uh. right. Uh, and some of you may see where I'm going, but I, I want to give this a, an explanation. When, when time machine starts up, if you watch the logs, you can actually see this happening. The first thing it does 
it and and it matters. The only thing that matters is whether you're connecting to a local volume, i.e. USB or a firewire drive connected to your computer or a remote volume. If it's a local volume, uh, it it skips the step of using a disk image for the backup. But really, even in Michael's case, it wouldn't matter. But the first thing that happens is uh, if it's a network drive, it mounts the disk image that's on whatever volume it is. And the disk image has a specific name and the name is the name of your computer and your Ethernet Mac ID, I believe. Uh, and then, you know, sparse bundle or something along those lines. So uh, and and then it peruses through that, figures out the date of the last backup, does some comparisons, figures out what files you need to back up and boom, off it goes and does its backup. So all the data that Time Machine needs to figure out what files are going to be backed up is actually stored on the time machine. I mean, it also looks at the computer, the files on your computer, of course, but it doesn't store anything on your computer that says this file was backed up to this drive on this date. And therefore I'm going to go ahead and back up, you know, everything after that. Right. It, it does a, a full compare each time because of that. Uh, the only thing you need to worry about is the name of the disk. So when time capsule gets, you know, if you set it up at your office, Michael, and then time cap, and then your sorry, time machine and your Mac gets home, uh, your Mac is looking for a disk named slash volume slash whatever your disk at the office was named. And of course I can't find it. So it doesn't back up. Once you switch that to the, the name of the disk at home, boom, off it goes. So the secret answer is make the disks the same name. Uh, now, that may be easier said than done if you're sharing with other people in both locations. But uh, but if you make them the same name, then uh, you can go through and uh, and just have it back up automatically. It'll figure out what drive has what version of the files and it will go ahead and update itself accordingly. So that's that's magic answer. Number one. Do you, do you have any anything to add here, John? Because I think I have magic answer number two, perhaps. No, you know, I was poking around trying to find where that info was stored, and I don't. Yeah, I keep right. looking. <laughs> okay, um, so magic answer number two would be using something like Marco Polo, right? Marco Polo is this app we've talked about it a couple of times before that monitors different criteria on your system and decides where you are, what profile it should run based on those criteria. And the criteria might be what IP range are you in? Or is this, does it see such and such a printer or is there an external monitor connected? And you can, you, you get to decide what criteria, you know, together define a certain location, one over another. And then once Marco Polo has enough criteria, has met enough criteria to say, yep, I'm pretty sure I'm at Michael's office or I'm pretty sure I'm at Michael's house. You can then have it perform operations. Now, I don't think there's a way to have Marco Polo directly impact your time machine disk. However, uh, you certainly could create an Apple script using UI scripting uh, that Marco Polo then fires off at the, the moment it realizes, yes, I'm at Michael's home or yes, I'm at Michael's office. So it could be done that way, too, if you don't want to change the name of the disks. That, that's all I got, John. John? John Braun? Yeah, I'm here. here. I'm here. I'm with you. You sure? No. Okay. <laughs> I think I found it here. I What'd think you find? it is, I think it's com.apple. So it's in Bihost. So I think it's in your home directory. Bihost, which is always an interesting place to source some preferences. Yes. Or preferences. Bihost. And I think it's com.apple time machine. 
It's where they like to put some stuff, some of that stuff. So it's story. Speak up because I'm not sure that the people driving in their cars can hear you. But uh, sorry, that's okay. But you're saying that's where it stores your time machine preferences. Uh, at least in one version. So yeah, home directory library preferences by host. Um, some things just like to be stored there. Yep. I believe there is a uh, time machine in there somewhere. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's possible. It, it would seem like an odd place to store it, though, because time machine preferences are system-wide, not, not based on the user. So it may, be, it may be higher up than that, maybe in uh, main library preferences, right? I think is, is where that's stored. But unless it's uh, – well, I guess it could be a um, – P-list file, which could be helpful. Or is it here? No, I found an article. Yeah, no, it's, should, it's in, I just can't find it. It's in, no, it's in, it's where I thought it was. It's on the root of your hard drive in the library folder, not in your home folder. So hard drive library preferences, uh, list. And if you look at that file, it does indeed there have we go. your exclude path as well as the path to the, um, uh, it, it's got, yeah, some, some path to the, to the drive. So you, you could probably edit this, although that might get, uh, Oh no, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't edit this directly. I'd, I'd let the UI do it because you never know what's, what's going on with that. Mm-hmm. All right. I want to talk to about, talk to you and all of our listeners, John, about our second sponsor called gazelle.com. What Gazelle does is they will take all your used electronics and for many of them, they'll pay you fair market value for them. Uh, and it's pretty cool. In fact, I, I, I love doing this. And every time I'm prepping a show, I always wind up pulling up Gazelle uh, just to make sure the website, nothing has changed and all that stuff. And, uh, and I wind up, you know, hunting for some piece of electronics and then I get lost for 15 minutes. What you do is you go in and you type in what you have. So, you know, your iPhone, an old iPod, an old cell phone of one kind or another computers, etc. And then you, uh, you, you, you search through and you answer some questions. Does it still work? If it's a computer, how much Ram does it have, et cetera, et cetera. And they'll give you a price. And that's based on you having answered the questions accurately if you happen to understate the condition of your machine, they'll actually raise the price. Conversely, if you overstated the condition of your machine, they'll lower the price. Now, here's the cool thing. In most cases, they're sending you a box for free, paying for all the shipping to get the, uh, the electronics to them. If they decide it's worth less than they quoted you on the website, they'll ship it back to you for free if you don't want whatever price they decide. So it's you know very, very little risk, especially if it's something... That's just sitting in your home or office. So check it out at gazelle.com. And then you can use a coupon code, a special coupon code, code MacGeek, M-A-C-G-E-E-K. And this will get you a 5% bonus. Uh, so if they say that whatever you're sending in is worth 100 bucks, well, you use the coupon code MacGeek. It's worth 105 so, uh, so check it out at gazelle.com. Great thing for, you know, if you've got an old laptop that, you're not sure what to do with and you don't want to bother with putting it on eBay or messing with any of that. Same. If you just upgraded your iPhone, this is a perfect place to, uh, to unload it. And those things actually will fetch a, uh, a pretty penny. So check it out. Gazelle.com with the coupon code Mac geek. Is it time to, uh, to go on to Justin here, John? 
It is time. I have the answer. Well, no, we have, we have some answers. We have some answers. You know, the questions in this week's show, even the comments in this week's show, which lead to some questions. This is this is tough. This is like taxing on the brain. It's good, Ouch. though. We like it. What's that? Ouch. Ouch. Yeah. So uh, Justin writes, having been a Mac user for four years now, this is the first Mac OS X issue I can't Google my way out of. My wife and I each have our own accounts, both admins, and use fast user switching. But sometimes we get stuck on one account and are unable to shut down, restart or switch users. Applications continue to work fine and we're able to log out. But the screen goes blue and hangs. I have tried quitting all applications and I've repaired permissions and reset PRAM. The issue is for both users as well. And my only option has been to hold down the power button to restart as well. It doesn't happen all the time, but I have been able to track a pattern. Great show. And thanks for the help. Okay. So he's saying he had this problem. It's a Mac pro and he's had this problem with 10.6.3 and 10.6.4. So this gets tricky um, mm. because I mean, that's the bad whenever you have to hold down the power button, which pretty much I think any computer be it Mac or PC mm-hmm. that that's, 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 that's a desperation move, but often it's the only way, you know, and, and I think it actually can compound a problem if you keep doing that because then you're not letting the system, you know, close files and, and clean things up. So I think it, it, it just makes matters worse. Of course, what else are you going to do? Leave the machine on now? Well, you might. But I mean, you uh, could. I mean, I've seen some machines that take a very, very, very long time to shut down because they're either wrestling with a network drive or, or they... You know, it could be that the hard drive's failing and it's trying to access something. Yep. Um, so, there, so there may be reasons other. That, well, we're going to suggest ways to find out what the heck is right. going on. But, uh, but I think once that starts happening, it's it's not going to get make itself better unless you uh, intervene. That's right. So the way I always like to intervene, and I I, I think you you would agree with me here, John, is we want to know what's going on. We want to look at the logs. Right. As they're happening. So, you know, as soon as this thing locks up, what is being said in the logs? Chances are, if we have to force power down, we're not going to see it. It may not get written out to the logs. You might be able to go back after the fact and look in the logs and find this. But uh, what I would do and, and my first solution is the most thorough, but it requires a, a little bit of time and b a second Mac on the same network. And the idea is you take that other Mac, you log in via the terminal to the Mac that's having trouble and you use that to take a look at the logs and you'll see right there what's going on. Now, to do that, first, you need to let your Mac accept connections uh, via the terminal, which is called remote management. And you turn that on in system preferences, sharing, and you just check the box for remote management. On the same screen at the very top, you'll see it says computers on your local network can access your computer at, and then there's an address. Remember that address. Now go over to the other machine. Uh, type S, go to the terminal, type SSH space, and then your short username. So, you know, if your short username is Dave or John or Justin, you just type that in Justin at, and then whatever the address is uh, from the first computer and hit enter. That should bring you to the command prompt. Uh, on that other, well, actually it'll ask you to authentic. It'll ask you to accept the security certificate if you've never done this before. And then, uh, it'll ask you for the password, type in the password. And, uh, as long as you get it correct, you'll have a command prompt from that point. Uh, there's a lot of different commands you can use to look at the log. I use the command less 
Uh, I type less space and then the, the path to the log is slash var slash log slash system dot log. Press enter. And then inside less, less is just a text uh, viewer. So it's built to view a text file that's not being added to. Uh, so you could scroll down to the bottom by, you know, using the arrows or the space bar. But what I do is I hold down the shift key and hit F for, I believe that's follow. And that jumps all the way to the end and shows the file as it's scrolling up. So it gives you this live updating version of the file. A little bit convoluted, more than a little bit convoluted, quite a bit convoluted. But uh, but it gets you there and then you'll be able to see exactly what's going on in the system log. And that will probably give you a tip as to what to uh, what to look at. Mm -hmm. So that's a good one. Uh, it, it, it's digging in the dirt a little bit. Now, I had another suggestion at first, but then, of course, you pointed out it was very silly. But then it actually wasn't silly because there, there's a. So I was thinking, well, why not use the console? Of course, when you're logging out, the console, along with everything else, kind of kind of goes away. Right. However. You pointed out to me and reminded me, Dave, that there is a way to start up your machine. And by extension, when you start up your machine in what's known as verbose mode, and I believe you got to hold down, I think it's command V when you're booting your machine. Correct. Or is it just V? No, no I think it may be no. command. command V. All right. So command V, what it will do is when your machine is both starting up and shutting down, um, I haven't done this in a while, but you're going to be seeing what, as far as I know, is basically what's being displayed on the console. So Correct. another way to do this, so, so I, I would say this is a quicker option. So, so boot up the machine in verbose mode. You know, once it's boot up in verbose mode, it, it's like a regular machine. But then when shutting down, now you may have to, you know, keep your eye on things because things could be moving quickly. But I suspect if the machine's getting stuck, then it's probably going to get stuck on a console message showing what is making it unhappy, whether it be a bad hard drive or a network connection or, or who the heck knows what, what, what it is. Or so, some, uh, some piece of software that won't quit, right? It could be anything. Yeah. Could be though. Yeah. Usually I see those inner, when I see the system having problems shutting down, it'll usually say I can't log off because this process won't let me. Yeah. As long as it's a process that is foregroundable. Good. Yes. Yes. To, to, to coin it. Good point. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, the only issue with doing the command V thing, though, is and, and it's worth trying because you're not going to it's either going to work or it's not is mm -hmm. the uh, when you shut down, of course, as, as John said, at one point in the process, it switches from all pretty and, and graphical mode to scrolling this, you know, long list of Unix gobbledygook and, and reports, uh, which is what you were looking for. The question is, is whatever problem you're having going to happen before or after Mac OS 10 makes that cut over. Uh, and if it happens after you're in great shape, be, well, you're not in great shape, but you're on the path to great shape because you can see what's happening in the log. If it happens before Mac OS 10 makes that cut over, uh, then, you know, then it does, it's of no, it's of no value. So. I mean, the other thing is, is worth looking at is, is just looking at the machine or shutting down the machine, you know, getting to the point where you got to do the force and then when you start it up again, not that force, but yes, um, <laughs> this isn't this isn't the error message you're looking for. Move along. <laughs> but you could look at the console once you started the machine up again. And depending on when the error occurred and if if the OS had the opportunity to write it to the console, you may also get a, a whiff of of what the problem was. Because you'll see a lot of messages that hint at shutdown. Right. And you, or you could look at the timestamps. I mean, that should be a pretty good sign as well. You're, you're going to see a big gap between when you shut it down and when it starts up again. So I'd say between all of those. Yeah. 
All right, what are, what are you saying to me here? Okay. I think I think You're uh, saying... I think we should move to to Rob. I, I like okay. Rob's question here, and uh, and time wise, it makes good sense. So, uh, of course, I have to be able to find Rob's question, and I expected you to talk for a little bit longer, but then I, were, I have it. You were I have it. Oh well, no, you know we can go either way. Uh, Rob writes. I have a Mac mini that serves as an HTPC home theater PC, I believe, and also accesses movies, music from the iPhone and iPad when I'm at my house. Currently have a one terabyte Seagate USB drive attached to the menu that has all the movies and music on it for iTunes. It's the type of drive that gets its power through USB only. Is this okay as a permanent solution or should I get an external drive with AC power? Would a faster drive make a difference? Okay, so, John, I know you and I are probably going to be about 50-50 in agreement on this one, uh, or maybe maybe we'll be 100%. No, let's know. violently disagree. Okay, if we will violently disagree about <laughs> how it is we're going to answer this question. Uh, so, <laughs> anyway, take it. I'll, I'll start off. So, so, my answer to him, now, yeah. I, I've actually had situations, and I, I would say for the most part, what I'm going to say is in the past, I have had drives. There are USB drives that were not... Uh, able to be powered from the computer. And I think that time has passed because I think a, a number of years ago, the USB drives tended to, to draw a lot of juice. Right, right. Well, Personally, and, and actually, to, to clarify, full-size USB drives or full-size drives still are going to draw more power than a computer could provide right. over the USB port. But laptop right. drives or, you know, the mini yes. drives are built to be powered that way and, and right. are great for portable solutions or if you just don't want to tie up another outlet and have another cord. So, yeah, go ahead. Right. So the good news is that the OS, so Mac OS X or any OS that supports USB, what happens is when you plug in any device, so, so there are a few things. The machine itself knows or it's programmed into the USB controller or into the operating system it knows how much juice is available. And this is represented in current available. And if you'd like to see this value, well, hey, it's easy. You run System Profiler, which, you know, you can go to the Apple menu and say, uh, get info or whatever. whatever. About this Mac. About this then, Mac. And then click more info. That's right. Right. And then it launches System Profiler. And then under the hardware category, I don't have it in front of me, there will then be a USB category. So, so this is one part of the equation. And if you click on the USB category, there is going to be a value called current available. And that's represented in milliamps. And that is the maximum number of milliamps of current, which current is one aspect of power. That's the maximum amount of current that's available on that port. Likewise, if you plug in a device, and you can also see this in system profile, the device will also advertise, and you're going to assume that the vendor is accurate in this report. They're going to advertise the amount of current that they require. And it's pretty simple. The OS should look at all the devices, and if you, and you may have seen this message. Some of you may have seen this. I've seen this. If you try to plug in a device, and it doesn't matter, you know, if, on whatever USB controller, if a device is demanding more current than is left over, the OS is going to say, get lost. Right. I have seen that message. And that, so that is the OS looking at the current available for that particular port m minus the current required by all the devices already on that port. Or what the device is. So it's not doing a physical check, but it's a, but oh. it's looking at the entry in the USB descriptor for the device saying, okay, I the, the vendor says I need 100 milliamps. Right. So 
Yeah, yes. if the vendor lies and if it needs 300 milliamps and the thing says it only needs 100, well, then you're never going to know except you're going to have wacky problems. Yes. So, um, so, so the answer is if you plug it in and the OS doesn't complain, then you're cool. If you want to get a warm fuzzy or you just want to dig, look underneath the covers and see what's behind all of this, look at the value for your USB port and then look at what the, the device is advertising. And that'll also give you a feel of how many more devices you could plug into that particular USB controller or hub or whatever type of device it is. Yeah. So I'm really close on, on what I just happen to be looking. I've got my keyboard plugged in uh, and it says it's a 500 uh, milliamp port. The keyboard with its USB hub, because you know, it's got an extra hub. Uh, mm. It's an Apple keyboard requires 300 uh, milliamps. So there's 200 left. Then I have this Razer uh, mouse, which is actually really cool. And I'm glad they still make stuff for the Mac um, plugged in. And that says it requires a hundred. So now I've only got 400 left. And then there's something here. Oh, the keyboard itself, because it's, you know, the keyboard is plugged mm-hmm. into this hub internally here. Uh, says the keyboard requires 20 milliamps. So I'm down to 80 milliamps left on that one particular thing. And I do have one more USB port I could jack into. So I should, I should, I should use this to test our theory. Right. But so, so if the power is available from the machine, then I don't see why you, you couldn't plug it in. Now as to the second question, let's answer the first question. Cause I, I agree. There's, there's no, well, there's no reason to, to, uh, to worry about where the power is coming from as long as there's enough power. So we are in a hundred percent agreement on this, uh, on this first one. So yes, go ahead. Yeah, I agree with you. Now the second question, and this is where we may disagree or I had some additional advice. So the second part of his question was as follows. Would a faster drive in parents, 7,200 RPM make a difference. And this is where perhaps you and I would deviate Dave or, or, or we'll have a little education here. Yeah. So I understand. So, so, so we have here a need for speed or desire for speed, and that's a good thing. Now, the only thing that I would say, and I did quite a bit of research before I got the new, as you know, I didn't listen to you, Dave, and I got, well, no, I wanted capacity. So when I replaced the drive in my MacBook Pro, I looked into this pretty thoroughly. Yeah. And the thing is, RPM, drive RPM, while a factor in the performance of the drive and the throughput doesn't guarantee that it's going to be faster. What I'm saying, and I will stand behind this, a 7,200 RPM drive may not, or in fact is not always faster than a 5,400 RPM drive. I'm going to stand behind this because it's true. If you look at the benchmarks from people like Tom's Hardware and all of those, but the RPM is, uh, so I guess what I'm offering here is that the RPM is not the only measure of drive performance. In fact, it's a very flawed measure of drive performance. Yes, it's almost like the you know the gigahertz uh, battle that we had you know a number of years ago with you know Mac versus PC and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. What I will say is that the things that do affect it, so so it's a combination of things. So the RPM is certainly one factor. Absolutely. The cache is certainly another factor. The the thing that you really want to look for, and that's usually hidden in the specs for a lot of drives, is the raw transfer speed from the platter to the interface. That's the number that you want, and that's the number that people like Tom's Hardware help reveal. Because even the right. bus speed on the drive, so it may say it's an ATA 100, whatever drive. Oh, we, well, yeah. that's misleading because that's the speed of the bus on the drive, but that is not the speed at which the data comes off of the drive. That's right. In fact, most any single 
platter, you know, single spindle drive. So excluding RAID units and, of course, excluding SSD. Mm -hmm. You know, ATA 100 was this big deal back in like the 90s, right? I mean, mid 90s. This is a long 15 years ago. Uh, ATA 100. Oh, yeah, we got this fast interface. Well, we still don't have drives today that would fill up that interface. Right now, Speed I believe Speedway yeah. SSD would. And of course, if you have multiple platters in a RAID array, you could you could Correct. You know, arrange it to do that, too. Of and we're getting to that point now. And now, actually, it, it's coming in the back of my memory. But I believe your basic SATA or SATA one, I believe, is one point five gigabits per second. I think SATA two is three gigabit or gigabits per second. And I think SATA three is six gigabits per second. You, you can look that up while I'm yeah. battling on a yeah, bit I more know, here. I But I believe right. those that's are the right. correct numbers. Now, the thing is, as you pointed out, Dave, we are approaching the point where, especially for a SATA 1 interface, the raw performance of the drive may bump up against that. So in the past, I mean, it certainly isn't a bad thing to have the interface to the computer faster than the, the speed at which the drive can get the, the stuff off the platter. Right. I mean, it certainly sucks if it's slower. Right. <laughs> right. And again, we're getting to that point where the, the, the interface may be a constraint with an SSD drive because the SSD drive can pull it off faster than it can be delivered to the computer. That's right. Especially with SATA 1. Not SATA 2 or SATA 3, at least for the time being. Right. The, the other point I brought up, though, um, was that USB may be, I, I don't know, USB by its nature, uh, I don't know, is, is necessarily the best interface. Now, I don't know if this drive has multiple interfaces. If I had to choose between USB... Two and FireWire, I think I'd go with FireWire, and I think you'd see, well, especially FireWire 400. So USB 2 and FireWire 400. So USB 2 is 480 megabits per second, right? Correct. And FireWire is, FireWire 1, or FireWire 400 is 400 megabits per second. Correct. But I believe, FireWire, I think, is a more efficient interface because usb typically requires the computer to do some work to shuffle the data around whereas i think firewire does not so my suggestion to him was if he has a firewire interface whether it be 400 or 800 i i would say to get the performance he wants that would be preferable to a usb interface right and so what i would say is uh and and i'm gonna i'm gonna interpret his question instead of taking it literally uh, okay it, well, he said, would a faster drive make a difference or would a 7200 RPM drive make a difference? And it it probably would make a difference if you were sitting there measuring raw speeds, potentially. I mean, some 5400 drives actually turn out to be faster than 72s. But by and large, the 72s, yes, are are faster, even though it's sort of a flawed way of comparing them uh, in terms of performance. But uh, but. You know, I'm, I'm going to add a for my setup at the end of his would a faster drive make a difference question. And no, I don't think it would. You know, you're talking about streaming music. You know, it, let's say you've can, you've mm-hmm. en- encoded your music at 256 kilobytes a second. Right. So, OK, well, you know, even the slowest pig slowest drive is still going to be able to keep up with that. You know, most of the time iTunes like loads the whole song into Ram and then just plays it from Ram. And you know, that that initial operation happens instantly. Your iPod certainly does that to save battery life. If, especially if you've got a hard drive in your iPod, right? It spins up the drive, loads the song into some, you know, memory bank and shuts down the drive and just plays the song. Why are you picking up pigs? I don't know. It's just something. They're pretty fast, man. They can be actually. I spent, yeah, I spent, when I lived in Texas, we had this pig that we kept at our house as an adoption thing. It was like it was going to this pig rescue deal, but they couldn't get it. And so we had this pig in our yard for three days. It broke out of the pen that it was in, chased around <laughs> in the pasture with the horses. I would get home from work 
And I would have to, I, my wife would already be home and she'd be out there chasing after this pig. And I'd get out there and chase after this pig. The dude from like one of the rescue places came, he threw out his shoulder trying to catch this pig. But the pig was sweating, well, you know, like a pig, because uh, the horses didn't like it in the pasture. And we had this one horse that was pretty aggressive. He was a thoroughbred. And he would chase that pig around all day. So this pig was getting chased around, you know, two and a half acres of, of pasture or whatever. And uh, finally, we uh, we we had a guy come out that just roped the pig and, and took it away. And that was the end of it. But it, it was a negative impact on my quality of life for a couple of days to, have um, to chase this pig around. The other thing I'll have to point out to you is that pigs actually don't sweat. I know. I think that's the point. <laughs> I'm going to stop correcting you. But anyways. Okay. okay um, so, so where were we? And, yes. Where, where, was, there, was there a tangent that just happened? Uh, so would a faster drive make a difference for my setup? So with music, definitely not. With movies, almost certainly not. I mean, movies just aren't that big either. And they don't stream at a high enough rate to make a difference. If you were streaming movies to seven computers from OneDrive, well, maybe, yeah. But, you know, you can copy, think about it, even to a slow, like a USB flash drive, right? You can copy a two gig movie in 10 minutes. Well, you know, that movie runs two hours. So you got, you know, you do the math. There's an hour and 50 minutes right. left. So, so for the stated purpose. Correct. The, I don't think the it performance of anything. Of course, I'm just in the, you know, if you're, if you're going to, if you're going to hook up a drive and you're, you're going to try to get maximum performance, then. Right. And go for it because you never. But I would say for copying things back and forth, hey, the more speed, the better. Sure. But yeah, but, but while you're streaming it, I, I absolutely agree with you. And actually, I did find some follow ups. Apparently, pigs do have some sweat glands, but they are not really useful for uh, temperature control. Yeah. So they have problems with temperature control. They get overheated. And I was feeling bad for this pig. But at the same time, I was pretty much ready for that pig to go because getting home from work and chasing around in our pasture from the time I got home from work until it got dark every night for two or three nights in a row, it, got, it started to get old. And we had this guy there from the pig rescue who was like, oh, well, you can't grab it by the back legs and you got to do. And that's why he threw out his shoulder because he grabbed the pig and then let it go. <laughs> and finally, we had this other guy come who just roped the thing, like I said. And, and before the maniac got there, they threw out his shoulder because he threw out his shoulder. So we had to hire somebody else. And uh, and that, I paid for it. It was like, we got to just get it done. I don't care mm. that we, this pig needs to go. And if I need to call Kenny, my neighbor who hates pigs and who has a very large firearm collection well maybe it's time to bring kenny in that that was what got them convinced them to let me hire somebody else uh was when i started ranting about kenny yeah so um the only are thing we still I, doing the geek cab here i'm gonna kind of rope us back oh, in here as it, as it were well no the only thing i could possibly imagine is you could argue that you're stressing however little the power supply of the computer Versus an external power supply, but I, I don't think that's a significant. No, I wouldn't worry about it. Argument, uh, and and then there are people As, that especially because you're not running a mouse or a keyboard off of the thing, right? I mean, presumably it's it's a media center, so the only thing it's got attached to it is a hard drive and a network cable. So right, you know, yeah. So the running, thing I yeah. yeah, the thing I would do, and I don't know if it, this particular drive here, and uh, just a reminder to all our listeners, whenever. You know, we've had folks write in, if you can give us anything, if at all possible, like in this case, I don't know what specific drive this is. Now he's saying it's a one terabyte Seagate USB drive. I'm going to assume it's only USB, but maybe it does have some of those other ports that I was babbling on about here. Could be. Or in the past, we had somebody write us saying, I have a vintage, you know, whatever your Mac. A lot of times if you go to System Profiler, it will give you a code in the System Profiler that indicates at least to a certain degree, uh, 
what it is. Like in the past, you know, our friend who mentioned, you know, a speaker set. Whenever possible, I know sometimes, you know, if you're on the road or something like that, you know, rather than, you know, do all this research and crash your car, it, it's okay. But but if you have any specific model information available, it, it can certainly help us uh, more thoroughly research something and give give you all a uh, y'all a better answer. You know, I went. I'm going to go on my second rant of the show here because this no. is the kind of thing that doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I went to uh, look up Seagate. Right. Because I was going to while you were talking, I was going to find what try and figure out what model he had. Right. We know it's Seagate. It's USB. It's got to be a small enough drive to be bus powered by USB. You know, so I I could narrow. I could educationally guess my way down. Right. So for whatever reason, in Safari, instead of typing Seagate dot com into my location bar, I typed Seagate into the Google search. Right. And I knew that the first result would be Seagate, which it is. Of course it is, because that's their name. Uh, if you type Mac Observer into search uh, in Google, we come up first. Now, here's the Better. here's the stupid thing. And I really firmly believe that this is stupid. Uh, and and the people from Seagate will probably hear this and 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 uh, and think bad things about me for for saying this. But above the first like natural search listing for for Seagate that comes up when you search for Seagate is a paid search listing for guess who? Seagate. So they are buying their own brand name uh, when they don't need to. Right. No one else can. They can block other people from buying their brand name. Why in the world are they buying their own brand name so that they have to pay for me to click on their link when I would be clicking on their link anyway, because it would come up first no matter what. It doesn't make any sense to me. And these are the people that, that, you know, say they're search engine experts and uh, that search advertising is better than brand advertising. I'll tell you what, I wouldn't have typed Seagate in there if I didn't know their name already. So you got to brand first before search is going to matter. But that's uh, um, no, you know, I just tried that. The only yeah. thing I'll say is that they, they do in their sp- and, and it's clearly marked as Google does. It says sponsored yeah. link. The only thing I'll say is that they are highlighting what I think are their premier or the products that they would like to sell versus the general link, which, you know, I got to give Google a tip of the hat is that they've been more and more, I think with our site or a lot of sites, their search results tend to dig in or or understand. I think, especially if you have a site map or something like that, they tend to to dig into at least maybe a high level hierarchy of the site and help you get there. And uh, yeah, Google's just, well, Google's good at, extracting search. money from your pocket. Is well, no, I think they're, I at. think they're good at search. They're, they're still they trying are. to figure out how to do other things. <laughs> right. Yeah. But they make so much money from search. They can fail at all the other things and still be wildly successful. So. All right. So you weren't, were you able to, uh, I'm sorry. No, were, were I got all to- heated up about that. So we're just going to have to roll with it. You know, that's, that's how it's going to have to be. Plus I got pig on the brain. Are you going to have a uh, pork tonight? I'm having bacon, man. I, I have some pork in the fridge, so um, right, I'll be right there. I think I'm grilling it up. Hey, go for it, man! All right. Anyways, uh, well, hey, if if you want to come over for some pork or some bacon, call first. And and if you had to call us, well, you know, you probably call me directly or Dave directly if you want to come over for dinner. But you could also call us uh, with, uh, you know, ask for directions or your questions. And Dave, you would probably call us at 206-666-GEEK, which is? Which is, which is 4335. Uh, if you wanted to email us, if you didn't need uh, to get us the message, well, frankly, the emails get to us at the same speed as the voicemails because we don't actually pick up that phone line. There's nowhere it rings. Uh, you would email us at feedback at macgeekgab.com mm-hmm. I said it I said feedback at macgeekgab.com I'm not sure if you heard me John but I said feedback at macgeekgab.com I absolutely heard you say feedback 
at macgeekab.com. Or premium at macgeekab.com if you are a uh, an elite member of our premium subscriber group. Oh, no, no, no. Don't say elite. Really? Mm-hmm. Sure. Right. Not. Yeah, that's okay. We're okay. We're, you know, we, we're in New England here. We, 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 we embody the concept of elitism. Right? I mean, it's in our blood. It's in our DNA. If you're born maybe here, you, Maybe you New it. Hampshire folks, but not in Connecticut. Well, you know. That, you see, there now you're furthering the concept of our elitism here in New Hampshire by saying that we we embody it better than you do. Is that right? Well, the thing I like about you guys now, you if I recall, you guys do not have a. Uh, you're you're one of the few states in the uh, union here that do not have a, a state income tax except for uh, dividends and. Uh, Correct. Right. Correct. That's right. Yeah. And no and that, no sales tax. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we we got both of those. So it's an, uh, it's an easy state in which to teach kids about money because they and how can, to keep it. <laughs> well, and well, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but but they also you know go into the store. They don't have to try and calculate some wacky tax rate in their head. They just know I have twenty dollars to spend. If that thing is three ninety nine and this is four oh seven, all I got to do is add those numbers together, and that's how much it's going to cost. There's no wishy washy factor. So it's good. Because here we're um, yeah, I know. You know they couldn't pick a nice round number. They had well, you know. I can do it in my head, you know, but uh, 6%, I think, right. is our sales tax right now. That's it's right. better than New York City. My friends from New York City actually came here and said, you know, we should do some shopping here because I, I believe New York City, when you add it all up, is over 8%. I think it's 8 and a quarter or something like that. You can Skype your comments to us at MacGeekGab. Of course, you can visit MacGeekGab.com for the uh, excellently prepared show notes by our own John F. Braun. And uh, then Michael Johnston of the We Have Communicators podcast, as I said before, converts this to AAC for you. Cashfly, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com provides all the bandwidth. And the podcast marketplace this month includes the A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, Yo Jimbo from Barebones Software, Text Expander from Smile on My Mac, Notebook from Circus Ponies, and 5% off at gazelle.com with coupon code MacGeek. All available through the Backbeat Media Podcast Network. And, John, that is it. We're out of Oh, here. no, it's not. What isn't it? I remember Twitter. John F. Braun is me. Dave Hamilton is you. Mac Geekab is... Us. Show notes. Mac Observer is Mac Observer. And uh, Pilot Pete is Pilot Pete. We miss you, Pilot Pete. Come on back, man. He's flying. I know. He's busy. So listen, if you're a pig and you're running in a field from a crazy guy, don't get caught. (laughs) Made up.